0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb, and I'm Julie Douglas. And this week we're talking about vampires. Specifically, we're talking about vampire bats. But I, I feel like I have to to urge everyone, like, don't don't run away because no, because on one hand, vampires, of course, as just in a, as, a, as a whole, like bringing in all of the various fantasy elements there. Like, that's completely overblown to the point that most people, I think, are, are getting, if not completely already, bored with vampires. You know, we, we kind of know what to expect yeah. with it. And then with vampire bats, I don't want to, you know, discredit them either. But on, at, a, at a surface level, it's easy to say, oh, well, they're bats and they drink blood from cows. No big deal. I've seen them on – I've seen uh, Attenborough talk about them on documentaries. And, yes, they're they're neat, but I don't necessarily need to hear about them for an hour. But the thing is when you really start asking questions about the blood diet and about, uh, the vampiric lifestyle and how that evolved, yeah. you really get into some crazy imaginative areas that, uh, that, that, that really blew my mind.
1: Yeah, these guys are so interesting for, for many, many reasons. And we've talked about bats. I think we had a couple of bat episodes last year, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about how, um, and we'll, we'll just, we'll discuss a little bit about this, but we've talked about how they have rich social bonds and, uh, they are amazing creatures and they have these, these four limbs. If you look at their bodies, it's very easy to see the human hand and the human arm bones, uh, replicated in that wingspan. That alone gives us this idea that there's so much to this mammal, this only flying mammal, um, that relates to us. And then there's the weirdness of the blood diet, too. Uh, so let's, let's launch into these guys, because they're so amazing.
0: Yeah, vampire bats. Now, bats exist uh, in various places throughout the world. We have uh, both the old world and the new world bats. Yeah. New world, of course, being the Americas. But uh, out of all these species, and uh, and we're talking uh, uh, over a 1,000, like uh, 1,105 more or less different species of bats in the world, mm-hmm. uh, they make up a quarter of all mammal species. And yet vampire bats, limited to three species currently. All three live in the New World, in the Americas, ranging from Mexico uh, to Brazil, Chile, and Ar- Argentina.
1: And there's a reason for that. Yes. Uh, we'll get into that in a little bit. But uh, when we're talking about these three species, we are talking about *Desmodus rotundus, Diphilia, Ecodata, and Daimus yungi. And uh, respectively, we were talking about the common vampire, the hairy-legged vampire, and the white-winged vampire.
0: Yes, and these are all three, again, they're vampires. They're songivores. They live, which and they're obligate, obligate samogobors, meaning they live exclusively on blood.
1: They are obligated to drink it; or they will
0: die. It's not just a situation of like, yeah, I eat eat bugs and then I I get a little blood here and there. No, they exist solely on blood. And as we'll discuss, like that's that's a hard road. Like blood is not a great nutrient. Like if you had to choose one thing in the world to live upon, right. That's not a good choice. Like that's why you have that's really one of the reasons you have only 3 species out of these thousands of species of bats that do this. The rest are living on fruits or insects. And then here are these these uh, guys and gals and they're depending upon blood.
1: Yeah, in a pretty limited region if you look at it from a world perspective. Um but let's look at the way these guys uh appear to us because they're they're quite striking. Um they have these pig-like noses that if you ever look at angry birds and you see the pigs, they mm-hmm. They've got big gizmo ears. Yes. Right? And um they have a kind of a it's been described as a cleft on its chin which helps to channel the blood. Yes. And then of course these just razor sharp teeth.
0: Yeah, and the, and the, the, the nose that you mentioned is all, they also have this, uh, this kind of nose leafing it's called, mm-hmm. which almost kind of makes their nose look like, like some sort of a fungus. Uh, and, and the, you find these all in, in other bats as well, not just the vampire bats, but they, they give the, the vampire bat a very distinct appearance, and in fact, early naturalists thought you know, I guess, based mostly on illustrations at this point, that those leaves might be sharp, so their noses are kind of these uh, these razor blades that they might be using to slice open their prey in order to drink the blood. Which isn't so. The uh, the, the nose leaves have have to do with echolocation and mm-hmm. also thermal location. Yeah. Uh, not only seeing things with sight, but also detecting changes in temperature, so they can see where that blood is, uh, see where see where, where to strike and where to drink.
1: Exactly. They actually it's sort of like an infrared system that can actually uh, sense that heat. But um but uh, what I love about the the way they look and these depictions of them is they almost look like these fictional like medieval etchings or something or mm-hmm. something that would come out of the the mind of man because yeah, they look
0: so bizarre. They they do. They have this gobliny uh, uh look to them. Yeah. And it it, you, it it's interesting because you You look at uh, at illustrations of fantastic uh, goblins and whatnot, Mm -hmm. and and monsters and demons, and then you look at the bat, and then you have to wonder what comes first, you know? Uh, To what extent has the bat influenced... Our iconography of the yeah. monstrous. To yeah. what extent has the monstrous uh, interpreted our interpretation of the bat? Because, for instance, the vampire thing—it uh, really, our understanding of the vampire bat is fairly recent. Uh, and, and again, they're in—they're in the new world. They're in the Americas. Mm-hmm. But the idea of the vampire, uh, of, of some sort of creature that sustains itself on blood, uh, on human blood, especially—that's like, a very old idea that you find, uh, you, know, you know, back in even in the Hellenistic ages and perhaps uh, you know even earlier.
1: Indeed, but let's, uh, let's get into some of their feeding habits because this is really interesting stuff. In a study published in the journal BMC Biology, it was found that vampire bats of the species Desmodus rotundus, by the way, they were named rotundus at the time because their stomachs looked, appeared to the people as very, very large to the researchers. Um, Mm -hmm. But little did they know that the stomach was actually filled with blood at that Ah. moment. So that's why the the stomach looked so rotund. But they found that these bats could recognize recorded human breathing sounds much better than human participants could. And vampire bats feed on the same prey, by the way, over several nights. And the authors of the study proposed that the bats use breathing sounds to identify prey in the same way um, humans use voice to recognize each other. So it's kind of, it's interesting not only that they have the, the certain livestock in mind, but they can differentiate between that livestock based on their breathing patterns. Yeah. And we've talked about this ability with bats before, this sort of zen-like ability just to, to uh, take everything else in the background and have it sort of recede and really hone in on the prey.
0: Yeah, they're amazing creatures and it, and, it's easy to focus on all, on all of this uh, the, the alien aspects of the bat mm-hmm. uh, because, uh, as we discussed in a previous podcast, it's 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 almost impossible to put ourselves in that perspective and to imagine seeing the world as the bat sees the world. Yeah. But they are also really social creatures. They typically gather in colonies about a hundred animals, but sometimes they may live in, maybe live in a group of a thousand or more. And uh, incidentally, over that time, a uh, uh, hundred bat colony can drink uh, the blood of of twenty five cows. But uh, but again, they're they're very social. You see actual um, reciprocal uh, altruism in vampire bats. Mm-hmm. You see, uh, because as we'll discuss, it's essential with with a blood diet to to get that blood every night, if possible. And if you go forty eight hours without blood as a vampire bat, you're starving. Yeah, you're toast. Yeah, and so we 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 see examples of the vamp of vampire bats bringing blood back and feeding. Uh, the famished bats, the bats that haven't had enough to eat, and and looking after each other in this in this fashion. Uh, and that one of the theories here it, with this is that bats picked up this behavior, this kind of altruism, this mm-hmm. looking after one another, because uh, in in their habitats, as you see the horse uh, die away, as you see the camel and the giant sloth disappear from the continent, mm-hmm. leaving them only uh, you know uh, much more limited food supplies. They had to do this in order to survive
1: yeah there's a kind of cooperation just like among humans, right? right? If you kind of help me out this time, I'll help you out next time you know you can't find a source of blood
0: right there That's what I
1: said yesterday to do, right
0: <laughs> exactly yeah and there's there they' even uh, you know there's some degree of uh of argument uh in this uh, on this particular topic among uh, uh bat researchers, but uh they may be able to weed out cheats, so if you're taking blood but not giving mm-hmm. then they're gonna cut you off.
1: Ah, that's yeah. interesting. And they they have seen that in captivity, all, all of the bats will share a meal if, if someone needs it. But uh, in their natural habitat, the adult males will not engage in this behavior. Hmm. The females will, of course. Don't. Interesting. Uh, they also like to sniff each other as a greeting. Oh, good. And they perform social grooming of one another.
0: Which is key. Uh, we'll be getting back to that in a minute.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, for their body size, vampire bats have one of the largest brains among bats. The neocortex is about twice the average size of other bats. And as we know about uh, the neocortex in humans, it's really important in terms of social intelligence and social complexity. So it would make sense that um, it is so very large and that they have these very rich bonds with one another. And we have uh, talked about this before and the other podcast about, uh, bats, but a lot of this has to do with their communication, which is super nuanced. Yes. We know, of course, they can recognize each other's, uh, voices. We also know that, um, bats share a common gene for communication called Fox P2 with us. And, uh, we also know, according to researcher Mirjam Kornschild and her colleagues at the University of Erlangen, Nuremberg in Germany, that the younger, great, Greater sac bats, the, the the baby ones, were observed stringing together screeches, barks, and hisses with no social context, essentially practicing language, much like a toddler does when it babbles. Wow. Yeah. So, again, you see a, a lot of parallels with humans.
0: All right. So let's talk about evolution. Now, mostly we're interested in the evolution of 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 vampirism of, of depending upon that blood diet. But, but let's, let's step it out a little, uh, a, a little more and think about the evolution of the bat itself, uh, bats and birds. Obviously they have a great deal in common, mm-hmm both uh both are flying organisms uh yet they're very different in birds we have uh, the avians emerging about 150 million years ago during the jurassic period uh and they go on from there to fly swim trot and burrow all over the world uh meanwhile uh the mammalian bat uh dates back uh between 75 and 100 million years ago but it's hard to say because uh even though they're one of the most diverse groups of mammals today, they're one of the the least common groups in the fossil records. Uh, Part of this is is that they have small, light skeletons. They don't preserve all that well. And also, if you're residing in a tropical environment, as a a lot of these these bats uh, do today and and did uh, historically, uh, these are not environments where... Where dead things last long. Yeah, yeah the break- rate of
1: decomposition is yeah. Much things better. it's
0: breaking down. It's hot. It's moist. Things are eating. Uh, so it's chan- the chances of fossilization are reduced. Again, there are over a thousand different species of bats in the world. They make up a quarter of all mammal species. Uh, and among these, we have the megabats. As opposed to the micro bats, uh, these are the large bats found in the old world, tropical rainforests, Australia, Asia, and Africa. Uh, the biggest bat in the world is the is the Malayan flying fox found in Asia. It weighs about two pounds and has a wingspan a span of about six feet. And that's uh, one of the fruit eaters. Uh, the smallest bat in the world is uh, Kitty's hog-nosed bat, uh, also called the bumblebee bat. And that's uh, found in Thailand and weighs about two grams. Uh, it's about as much as a dime, by the way. And it has a six-inch wingspan. So both the bat and the bird learned to fly in their own way. And uh, there are other fascinating examples of their convergent evolution. Several dozen uh, bat species and more than 300 species of hummingbird evolved to resemble each other, both anatomically and behaviorally, uh, solely because they existed in similar environments and exploited a similar resource, Nam- namely nectar. All right. This is the, the sugary liquid bribe of pollen producing plants. <laughs> But those are the nectivores. And we're here to talk about bats with another highly specialized lifestyle for a liquid diet. And we're talking here, of course, about the sanguivores, the blood drinkers. How did the blood drinkers evolve?
1: Well, the first vampire bats emerged less than 26 million years ago, according to genetic evidence. And they are closely related to insect-eating bats that may have gorged on the parasites of prehistoric beasts. So if you've just feasted on a fat, juicy tick, let's say, Mm -hmm. then it's not too far of a walk in logic to see how some bats may have begun to have the taste for blood or to seek it out as as a main source.
0: Right. And we, we see this to a certain degree in birds. Uh, there are birds that occasionally or even frequently feed on blood. Vampire finches of the Galapagos Islands mm-hmm. occasionally feed by drinking the blood of other birds. Uh, meanwhile, there are plenty of birds that feed on ticks and other ectoparasites on large animals, you know, oxpeckers and the like. They're eating the ticks. They're eating the fleas, whatever. And then... If there's a little blood there from the, the host organism, they'll they'll go ahead and cross that line and have some of it as well. But there's little or no convergence between birds and bats when it comes to, to blood. When we're talking about obligate blood drinking, you don't see uh any obligate blood drinking birds, which is thank goodness. Well, yeah, thank, thank Imagine goodness. Imagine the
1: pigeons out there. Yeah. <laughs> so so central are these blood meals. To vampire bats, that they actually have been messing around or modifying a plasminogen activator gene, which... We have it you know, humans have it and it protects against heart attack by producing proteins that bust up blood clots and they clear vessels. Um but they actually have this uh this gene that they can activate in their saliva. And David Liberles, a geneticist at the University of Wyoming in Laramie, studied three species of vampire bats and, and found this modification and he found that two species that prey on livestock acquired additional mutations that prevent these PA proteins from being silenced by a natural inhibitor. So he says that's a process that humans and other mammals use to put a harness on blood clotting, but feeding on mammals, he says, is a key adaptation for bats. So it's just further evidence that this is so important to them, uh, that they've been tinkering over time with their genes to say, hey, we, we need to make this process more solid.
0: Yeah, like, the, at, a, at a genetic level, they are completely committed to this blood diet. And we're going to get into, into some more aspects of this a little more, but it's such a specialized diet that it demands a very specialized physiology. Exactly. Like, it's, it's not and, – and that's something to keep in mind, again, when you think of, of humanoid vampires. Like, what would it take for a human – could a human live on blood exclusively – No, a human couldn't. It would require a different species of humanoid.
1: Exactly. Entirely. Yeah, you'd have to be a very tiny humanoid, first of all. Uh, But I did want to, a little side note here, mention that the anticoagulating enzyme that Mm -hmm. they produce has been synthesized by researchers, and it is called draculin. Nice. Isn't that nice? And it's used in medication for stroke victims to keep tissue damage at a minimum by uh, keeping that blood flow to those tissues.
0: Yeah, like we discussed when we were talking about uh, leeches, I believe, Uh, any animal that, that that depends on blood. It has to be kind of a, a hacker, and the, and the 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 bat though, it, it's hard to call a bat a parasite. You see people shying away from them as yeah. bat and calling them a carnivore, but still they have to be able to hack the blood. And so, you know, from a medical standpoint, as we try to figure out ways to hack the blood, we end up turning to the uh, to the leeches, to the bats, to the parasites of the world, to the blood drinkers of the world, and mm-hmm. see how they do it. Um, you mentioned the evolution of the, the bat and the idea that they evolved from insect-eating um, bats in prehistory. And I just wanted to run through um, that, that that idea.
1: Because it gave you some visuals, didn't it?
0: Uh, it did. And uh, and specifically, I was reading a fantastic book, and you were reading this as well, uh, by Bill Shute called Dark Banquet, Blood, and the Curious Lives of Blood-Feeding Creatures. Uh, it's available on paperback hardcover and kindle and it's it's really excellent excellently written uh, great for just about any uh, any reading level any any science level um, but uh, he really goes into this topic and i was I really enjoyed it so much I wanted to hit the the three uh, hi- or so hypotheses that he mentions now the first hypothesis is again we have these proto vampire bats and they're feeding on blood engorged ectoparasites found on large prehistoric animals. So mm-hmm. think of all those crazy prehistoric animals that we covered in the past or you've yeah. seen pictures of. Um, and they're and they're of course loaded with parasites. Big old ticks, big old fleas, other things that are it's gorging on the blood. Yeah, it's a feast. And you're a bat. You're you 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 eat insects and it's a world in which the the insects are are the available prey. And here here's a large animal and it's crawling with these things. So you're uh you're gonna you're gonna eat those right you're gonna eat those big blood gorged ticks and whatnot and so the the idea here is that they're dining on those and over time they cross the line uh, you know they start drinking some blood from the host and then they reach the point where they're living exclusively on the blood of the host animal and ignoring all of those uh ticks and fleas mm-hmm. now. This is supported by the fact, as a theory, uh, as a hypothesis rather, that 70% of bats are insectivores. So we know that that prehistoric bats would have been eating insects, and there are anecdotal reports of vampire bats preying on vampire moths. Now, just. <laughs> That's going to come as a surprise for a lot of you because, yes, there is a vampire yes. moth. Um,
1: <laughs> blood on blood here.
0: Yeah, and you'll find them in Malaysia. Uh, you'll find them in uh, Thailand, Leet, Thailand uh, Ural, southern Europe. And and so, there again, there's anecdotal evidence that vampire bats have preyed on blood-engorged insects. So take that for what it's worth.
1: Another scenario that lends support to this idea is the whole grooming thing, right? Because mm-hmm. you, you had pointed that out. That's that's important uh, socially that you sit there and groom each other. So that would be an opportunity to pick out some nice juicy morsels, right? That so that could lend some support to it. And I said that it was a sort of short walk in logic to say you would cross over, but that's also a little simplistic, right? Because that's like saying that if you had to be a cannibal in this uh, very dire situation as a human being, mm-hmm. that once you had that, you might go cannibal for the rest of your life, right?
0: Right, yeah. We, we find it increasingly, when you try and apply some sort of mathematical model for evolution, it you, you fall into this trap. You're, because it's not a situation of, well, X plus Y equals Z here, so it must be the same yeah. here, and it, it gets gets complex. Anyway, um, bat expert Brock Fenton disagrees with this uh, this theory that we've been discussing, and he argues on this on three points. Number one, Ectoparasites are small. Like even if we're talking about a prehistoric animal, mm-hmm. it's it's still going to have small parasites. It's not like like the the giant uh, uh, elephant had giant ticks. Necessarily. So it has take like
1: thousands of these things. Yeah, you're to still going to eat blood. a
0: lot of them, and it's going to be difficult to uh, ecto ectoparasites are difficult to find on other animals. And vampire bats are restricted to a very slim portion of the Americas. And so part of his argument is, if this was really how things were going to go down, why didn't it go down like this in other places? Mm -hmm. So he presents hypothesis number two, the idea that proto-vampire bats fed on insects and larvae crawling around the gaping wounds of large prehistoric mammals. So... Which is another wondrously grotesque image to imagine. A giant prehistoric creature, you know, it's shambling through the forest. Maybe it's something it attacked it, it got into a fight, or it just ripped itself on some thorns. Mm -hmm. But it's got this bleeding hole. So what happens to a bleeding hole on an animal? Insects come for it, right? Things start laying their squirming larvae in there. and uh, And so a bat might come and say, well, hey, I want to hang out where all these delicious insects are hanging out. And then they end up inevitably drinking from that font as well.
1: Which, again, is kind of too easy of a walk here.
0: Yeah. Uh, Shoot, in his book, uh, Counters, he says that uh, this scenario requires large wound sites on a regular basis. Um, and uh, and also, as we're going to get into a little later, uh, vamp- uh, vertebrate blood is water and protein. There's no fat. So vampire b- bats can't store it. Uh, as fat, like non-blood-drinking bats store away their uh, their their food. Uh, they need to feed and consume fifty percent of their body weight in blood each night. So you need to be able to find if you're depending upon wounds uh, surrounded by insects. You got to be able to find those wounds surrounded by insects on a regular base, basis. And also echolocation is going to be useless in finding these animals. Um, it's it's just there are a number of holes in this argument as well.
1: Now, the third hypothesis here is something called the arboreal feeding hypothesis, and it really focuses on carnivorous members of the neotropical bat family, philistomidae, found in South America, where formerly there had been vast forests which were then replaced by grasslands. So what does that mean? That means that all of a sudden you have very uh, small little islands of forest Mm -hmm. area. And you have a lot of, of, of big mammals taking refuge in these trees, sleeping in them at night. And so all of a sudden, you've got a population of one tree that might be hosting many different hosts, um, as opposed to being spread out through the forest. And this is an opportunity for vampire bats. So what you're talking about here is a bunch of animals like a sloth, taking refuge in these trees, falling asleep, and then these vampire bats, who are so stealthy, by the way, sneaking up and just saying, well, you don't mind if I do, and uh, taking their blood samples there. And then, of course, uh, this would encourage that behavior over and again as an adaption in this scenario, because if you've got that loss of habitat and all of a sudden you've got these mammals uh, congregated in the trees, well, that makes easy pickings.
0: So which hypothesis is true? Well uh the answer's still open to debate uh, that you know it's possible as with a lot of things it's more of a combination of these ideas as opposed to one distinct idea and uh, uh it, it, and we have to remember that it's, it's 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 difficult to avoid falling into the trap of thinking of evolution as this clockwork predictable scenario. Again, if it's X here, then it's X there. Uh, if, if we turn back the clock and did it again, everything would come back to the same place, that we'd get the same results, and that's that's likely not how it goes. Uh, for whatever reason, a single group of New World leaf-nosed bats evolved as the only vertebrate obligate sanguivores, and it's pretty amazing. All
1: right, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to talk more about the hard knock life and uh, bloodletting. All right, we're back. Let's talk about these vampire bats because if you've made it this far into vampire bat territory, you're about to get this serious blood payoff because yes. this is fascinating stuff. And uh, maybe we should start this section as like you, imagine you are the vampire bat, dear listener.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, imagine that you have sort of gone down this uh, almost evolutionary, I, I don't want to say an evolutionary dead end, but you've you've gone down far enough that you're you're in this very niche area and there's no there's no turning back. It's like that line in Macbeth where Shakespeare says, you know, I've, I've waited, uh, the, the main character says, I've waited through blood so far that if I were to turn back, it would be just as much work to keep going. And that's where the vampire bat is. Yeah. It's a hard knock life that the vampire bat has evolved into, but there's no turni- turning back, at least not anytime soon.
1: That's right. So you are stuck with this blood diet. And the bad news here is again, we've talked about it before, blood just doesn't have much to it in terms of nutrients. In fact, 80% of it is water. So what do you have to do? Every night you must go out and hunt and lap up 50% of your body weight. And this is, this is a hard thing to do because you can't store any fat that it might have because it doesn't have any fat so you every night are obligated mm-hmm. to go out
0: yeah you can't sleep it off uh, you know you also you can't hibernate you can't build up stores for later you're you there's no uh, yeah, there's no preparing for the winter if winter comes you're you're gone if you can't get blood so, and and that's why we see these three species of vampire bats living in tropical areas they cannot um knack it in areas that have uh, cold climates
1: so that's right you cannot hack the cold weather you have to take advantage of these areas that have warmer weather and you must be really wily so it's not just like hey i gotta go out and get some blood no you're going to be the best at getting blood is any blood getting mammal is going to get
0: yeah you've got to use your stealth to the highest degree, because you need to prey on sleeping animals. You need to not wake them up while you're drinking their blood. And you, you can't exert a tremendous amount of effort and energy finding your prey because, again, you're, you're, you're on a, a very tight budget here. You have to eat every night and you can't spend too much energy because you can't store that much energy. So you can't go on long, drawn-out hunts covering you know vast miles of, of, of area. You have, to, you have to really hone in. You've got to make it work. And you've got, to, you've got to get to feeding.
1: That's right. And so as a result, you have this exquisitely sensitive heat-detecting molecule covering nerve ending on your nose. And this allows you to detect infrared heat that is just beaming from areas on uh, a livestock's body and and that that's sort of like the the area that you know you're going to hone in on because as you said you don't have tons of energy here you got to be fast
0: yeah you got to go right for the vein there's no just crawling around on its rump until you find an area that's that, that's right you can't feel it out you got to see it you got to focus in on it and luckily the vampire bat can do just that
1: yeah and these guys they that mostly attack from ground though sometimes it's from the trees but they can actually run it's only like 2.5 miles per hour or something, mm-hmm. but still that's pretty fast and they think the reason for that, researchers think, uh, is because if they're around something like a horse or a cow, it's easy to get trampled upon, so you gotta get out of there fast, you gotta be able to hop away, but it's pretty amazing to see them running.
0: All right, so you land next to the cow. You hit the ground running, more or less, and you, 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 you scamper up there right to the, the place, that, that hot spot that you've, you've seen with your, your, your fantastic uh, heat vision, and this is where you're going to feed. What do you do? Well, first thing you do is you, you lick that area. Where the, where you're gonna uh, apply the incision?
1: Ah, the saliva, yeah. anticoagulants.
0: Yes, because the saliva here is is key and is really amazing. Uh, to quote uh, Bill Shute from his uh, book Dark Banquet, the process actually consists of a maddening cascade of chemical reactions that must occur before a clot forms. Because again, you're making you when you make your incision now with your your sharp teeth. Mm-hmm. You're making a very small wound. You're not just, you know, you're not making this enormous font from which to drink. You're making something that, given its own devices, given the body's own defenses, this would normally close up in in a couple of minutes. This is not, uh, you're not just, you know, opening a a jugular here and dancing around the fountain. You're creating a small (laughs) wound, but anticoagulants in the blood prevent it from clotting, allowing you to feed there for uh, the, the amount of time necessary to get that full meal.
1: Yeah, in this case, about 20, 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. And if you think about their incisors, they are knife-sharp. Um, in fact, Bruce Patterson, a zoologist at Field Museum in Chicago, says you can actually cut yourself handling a bat skull in a museum. Wow. They're that sharp. Because, again, we're talking about efficiency here, getting in and getting in quick. And their tongues also get into the, the game here because they contain a specialized groove that allows a blood meal to flow via capillary action so they do not suck they slurp they lap up
0: which is another thing to keep in mind because again it's it's a small wound that's not going to be held open by suction and uh and to to your point about the teeth that's another aspect of this too is that it's such a small cut and it's made with such a sharp knife you'd barely feel it while you're sleeping
1: Um, in his book uh bill shoot talks about an encounter with a bat and a hen that had him reeling and I love this. Do you know what I'm talking about? I think so. So I was thinking about this. Not only does the bat have data from um, from that infrared molecule and data from the breathing pattern of the livestock, but it also has been observing it and perhaps taking those observations and uh, passing them down among its young and so on and so forth. And what I mean is that Bill Shute saw this bat sidle up to a hen, thought the hen was going to be like, no way, get away. Mm-hmm. But it did not because the bat then went and cuddled up to the hen right at this area. It's called, um I think it's called the brood patch. It's where chicks will go because there's more heat and more um capillaries that are congregated there. So there's more heat available. So essentially, this bat is mimicking a chick. And oh. cozying up with the hen. And what he said is that he saw the hen like visibly look to be relaxed and then settle down.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then the bat kind of burrowed down a little bit more. And a couple minutes later, he saw evidence of that blood from underneath the hen where that bat had been suckling at the vein. Oh, wow. That, I mean, that I think it's amazing, amazing. that yeah. it essentially said, hello, hen. <laughs> <laughs> I know I look like a bat, but really, I'm a sweet little chick who just needs a little warmth.
0: That is amazing. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the tongue earlier, and the tongue is also really key here. Again, the the bat is not sucking the blood. It's it's lapping the blood. But uh, but lapping, it's easy to, to, to just say, oh, lapping and just sort of have this loose idea in your mind of a dog or a cat lapping up milk or water, which even that, incidentally, if you slow it down and look at the video, is a far more complicated process yeah. than we than we you know give it credit with the bat. Uh, you have this piston like motion of the tongue and it causes the blood to flow along a pair of grooves on the bottom of the tug and into the mouth through that cleft in the lower lip that mm-hmm. we mentioned earlier. So you have to imagine that, again, it's like this piston action of the tongue, just sır, 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 and you get this flow going out of the wound uh, into the bat's mouth.
1: Yeah, and we're talking about a tablespoon when it's all um, done. But, again, that's half of the the bat's body weight. So after it leaves the tongue, it goes into the esophagus and down into the stomach, which is uh richly lined with blood vessels that absorb that water. And that shunts it straight to the kidneys, before it actually goes to the intestines. So the stomach thing is really important here because it is absorbing all of that water. But the reason is, is because they have to work fast, these bats, in terms of digesting and expelling this stuff from their systems.
0: Yeah, again, they're loading up on blood. And they have to be ready to escape at a moment's notice. You know, that cow might wake up uh any at any time and you're going to have to get away you're going to have to then fly away and you cannot be weighted down with all of this water weight cuz again we're talking about just just consuming you know half your body weight in food and you're in and you're going to have that uh, that stomach just filled with water so you've got to get rid of it and that's why you have this rapid uh, uh removal of the water shunt it through the kidneys and then the bat vampire bat is urinating as it's feeding like shortly after it starts feeding mm-hmm. it starts urinating because because it uh, it has to prepare for takeoff.
1: Yeah. To add uh, insult to injury here, and it avoids soiling itself by extending one hind limb sideways and downward. So it's like, oh, I'm not going to get on me- any on me, but hey, you. Sorry about that. Yeah. And it's
0: also an interesting scenario when you start thinking about uh, about the urine itself. It, it has to it, the urine that the bat is pumping out is getting increasingly uh, concentrated as it goes because. Uh, Part of the whole deal with our urine, of course, is we're getting rid of these uh, toxic aspects of of our meal, and uh, and that's what the bat is doing as well. But it's doing in such a uh, such a fa- it's such a fast process at play here that you just have the, the the concentration of the urine is just building up and building up the more that it urinates, and you get into this interesting area here too, where despite the fact that the vampire bat has this this one hundred percent liquid diet. And despite the fact that it lives in the tropics exclusively, it lives in its own kind of personal physiological desert. There's always this risk of dehydration because it has to get rid of so much of the water that it consumes through its meals that, uh, that it, that that again factors into the economy of the vampire bat. Uh, it can't, it can't live in a place where there's any kind of dryness because it does, it's living with such a slim margin, um, between its uh, its its life and complete dehydration.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a really complex balancing game there. Yeah. And I think it speaks again to this idea or at least in my head that they almost feel like they're cursed in a sense, like in and of course I'm evoking uh vampire lore here, but you know, you can't uh you can't hibernate. You have to live in this very specific area. Um and night after night you must go out and kill well, not the kill part but blood,
0: you, blood. One thing it makes me think about, um you you've done freelance work of course, freelance writing. Yes. Uh and and I have as well and at times, you've, you, you like, like, like myself, you've probably figured, you've thought to yourself, well, could I just depend solely on freelance writing? Mm-hmm. And I feel like it, you end up getting into this sort of vampire bat situation where you're like, yes, if I, if I pray, if I, uh, get enough gigs on a regular basis mm-hmm. in the, in the, just the right environment mm-hmm. and I never sleep, never hibernate, then I can make it work. I can just barely make it work and I can survive and uh, and and pay all my bills,
1: and then you end up just defecating and urinating on yourself all the time to avoid having to deal with any loss of energy, right? right? And you're always <laughs> looking for that that next that next kill, that next job, yeah, yeah it is it's kind of I, I like that analogy
0: yeah the the vampire bat is is living on the margins here, you know, it just it's 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 found this niche, but it is a hard niche to exist in
1: indeed it is.
0: I want to point out that uh, we do have a few fossil vampire bats, including the the biggest vampire bat uh, that that ever existed, as far as we can tell from the fossil record, and that's the thirty percent larger uh, Desmodus dracula. Uh, which is, of course, a great, great name for a vampire bat or uh, some sort of a, uh, you know, gothic band. Uh, and they were, uh, they were total vampires. Uh, they were not any kind of transitional form, and they existed farther up into the Americas. But the idea is, this larger bat is depending on the blood of larger species. Okay. Uh, and as those species died out in prehistoric times, so did this. And so the domain of the vampire bat was once larger and contained more species, but mm-hmm. then it shrinks. And it's then it's confined to these uh, these hot uh, tropical zones, and the the few animals that they can still prey on for blood.
1: Ah, but what of global warming, which uh. is actually warming up many parts of the world, and this has led some people to say, "Hey, uh, we think that there is going to be an increase in the vampire bat population, specifically in North America, in Texas, and some parts of Louisiana, in the next couple of decades."
0: So they might be coming. To a city near you. To a city near you, yes.
1: All right, so um we've given you guys a description of these bats, but if you would like to see them specifically on a vamp cam, you can at this very moment. In fact, there's a, there's a camera in there 24 hours a day. You can observe these. And this is at the Organization for Bat Conservation. So that's batconservation.org.
0: Yeah, I was looking at it the other day and they're, they're really adorable, the they're, way they're scurrying around. That's the thing about the vampire bat, it's like part of us responds to them and we, and with this, uh, with this, ah, oh, there's yeah. something kind of cute about them, but then there's also something that in the, the very, you know, depth of our genes we, we can't help but find repugnant. They, 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 they walk that line.
1: Well, the distance, though, of the vamp cam makes it all sorts of, of adorable, right? <laughs> you're like, my hand's not in that cage with them. Right. So that's so cute that they're cuddling right now. And or... it's
0: not full color e- either, so yeah. it's got that going for it. Yeah. So there you go. The vampire bat, the evolution of the vampire bat, the physiology of the vampire bat. I uh, I hope it, uh, it it allows everyone to, to have even more respect for these uh, amazing creatures and just rethink the vampire equation in general. Like, it really made me... Rethink our ideas of a, va- a vampiric human and what that would be like. I feel like we focus <laughs> yeah. we focus far too much yeah. on the supernatural aspects of a, of a humanoid vampire. We focus on the viral aspects of like vam- vampirism as a disease uh-huh. in these fantasy in- scenarios, and of course we end up fantasizing and, and focusing on like the the sexy and, and alluring aspect of some sort of a, a fictional vampire, whereas. If we look to the biological example, if we look to the vampire bat, it paints an entirely, mostly entirely different idea about what a vampiric human would look like. I think the closest we've come is, is, is the Nosferatu of the, yeah. the classic film and some of the, uh, the rehashes we've seen.
1: Which is kind of like this withered figure, mm-hmm. um, not this robust uh, character wearing shades and a leather jacket. Yeah. And, just, and like, ruling the night!
0: No, because even the vampire bat does not rule the night. It knows it does I mean, I'm, I'm anthropomorphizing here. It knows it doesn't rule the night. It, it has to stick to the shadows. It has to conserve its energy. And it has to get the, the easiest... Uh, most filling meal it can. So the idea of this slim, ghastly corpse-like Nosferatu, mm-hmm. uh, you know, reeling in the shadows, like that's that's I feel like it's that's the closest that we've we've managed to get.
1: I agree. I wish that Jim Jarmusch's uh new movie Only Lovers Left Alive would have explored <laughs> that idea, which you explored in a blog post by the way. Oh yeah, okay, I the did week. a monster
0: of the week on this idea. Um
1: so check that out if you if you want to kind of do some uh reimagining of Dracula in popular lore.
0: Yeah, I do want to see Only Lovers Left Alive. I didn't think that I would want to see another vampire film, but that one looks pretty good.
1: Tilda Swinton, the magical yeah. unicorn of a human, is in it, so you kind of—I mean, I have to see it just for that alone.
0: Yeah, I want to see that. I also want to see Neil Jordan's uh, Byzantium, which uh, sounds interesting. Like on the surface, it sounds like just another scenario of like two two vampires, like a mother and a daughter vampire, and they. They're, you know, trying to find their way in a, a world of vampires and living in the shadows. But it's, uh, it's like
1: misunderstanding a, each other. Yeah,
0: but because it's a mother daughter. But it's it sounds more interesting because it's like strong, it's supposedly strong female characters based on a play by a, a female playwright. Mm-hmm. So there's there's something about that that uh, I, I want to give that one a shot as well. All right. So what about uh, you guys and gals out there? Uh, what do you think about the the science of the vampire bat, the physiology and evolution of the vampire bat? Um, how does that make you rethink? These curious creatures How does it make you rethink uh, the, the, the myth of the vampire As it exists in folklore And in popular culture uh, We'd love to hear from you And you can find us At all the normal places There is of course Stuff to blow your mind That's the mothership That should be your, your first stop when you uh, think to yourself, I wonder what those guys are up to. Well, go to stuff to blow your mind dot com. That's where you'll get the, the full dosage of all of our activities, including our blog posts, our podcasts, our videos, links out to our various social media accounts, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Google Plus, um, our YouTube account, which is Mind Stuff Show. If you haven't followed us there, if you're a regular YouTube user, go there and uh, give us a follow. Let's uh, check out some of our videos there. We have a uh, a number of uh, cool new projects that we're pushing out uh, in the weeks ahead.
1: Indeed. And if you would like to get in touch with us in the meantime, you may do so at BlowTheMindAtDiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Yeah.